Psalm 69. This morning, we've been walking through the Psalms together, and uh, we find ourselves in Psalm 69. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 69. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible there around you in the seat back in front of you. There's a lot of verses in this chapter, and we won't be walking through each of them verse by verse. Uh, Time doesn't allow us the benefit of doing so, but I would encourage you to have your eyes on this passage because I believe this is a passage, if it's not already, will, will become very familiar to you. And here's why. We are living in a very unique time and space within Christianity. Uh, in the past 10 to 15 years, we have seen a shift happen in how culture has responded to Christianity. Now, I would say that this isn't unique to Christians. I think this is unique to American Christians. Persecution in the church is not new to the church. But hostility towards the church and hostility towards Christians is something we are beginning to experience as Western Christians. But it's not new to the church. If you read the book of Acts, we're going to see persecution existed and happened and occurred. And in many ways, what we're experiencing aligns us more and more. And I would not dare to say that what we're experiencing is persecution. I want to use that term very carefully in the sense of like we're not dying for our faith in Jesus in America today. But there will be a day, I believe, when that time comes and we need to be prepared But we are facing a hostility, a a rising hostility against us as believers in Jesus. And and it's important for us to understand that shift and what we should do and how we should respond in the midst of it. So Psalm 69 becomes very helpful and instrumental because it it positions us and postures us to learn from someone who is experiencing this. How do you remain resilient? How do you remain faithful in a, in a culture that is hostile towards your faith in Jesus? And if you don't know this, like if you haven't experienced this, there is a rising hostility. We're, we're seeing a shift in American culture towards Christianity. And here's what I would say. Um, I would tell you, I've, I've been learning. There are some very thoughtful and engaging cultural gurus who are helping dissect the intersection between faith and culture. I'll mention a few of those names. Uh, people like John Tyson, Mark Sayers, John Mark Komen, Carl Truman, uh, to just name a few. These folks have, have illustrated. There's podcasts, there's books, there's speaking engagements where we're experiencing a shift. All of them talk about these three shifts that are happening in culture. And I I want to kind of outline this because otherwise we jump into this text and we have no framework for understanding what it is that David's experiencing here. So I wanna wanna help you lean in and go like, oh, we, we are seeing that, we are experiencing that. And while Psalm 69 may not be like the confession of my soul right now, it's going to be. If you're gonna remain faithful to Jesus, this is going to be your prayer. This is going to be your cry. This is going to be what you look to for hope and comfort. Okay, so here's the shifts that are happening. First one is from majority to minority. 
okay, from my majority to minority. Uh, we have seen, you've heard, you've, you've read the research, like America is a Christian nation, and we've seen and experienced this, and then we've seen the Barna research. Barna does a lot of uh, research within the church, within evangelical Christianity, and, and kind of seeing the different trends that are happening, and you may hear recent statistics that say, you know, like 56% of people identify as believers and followers of Jesus. And we're like, wow, that's staggering. That means like half the people, half the people that we're walking the streets with, half the people we're living in our neighborhoods with, half the people that we're brushing shoulders with share our same worldview, share our same values, share our same moral beliefs. But here's what I, that's not true. You, you may not, want, like, what's wrong with the statistic? And here's where Barna kind of jumped in and, and said, hey, we got to do a little more research. One of the things that they uh, began to, to see is that um, they, they looked at the most post-Christian cities in America. And, and what they did in, in kind of pulling together that research, they, they began to identify, although they checked the box on the census that says, are you Christian? And you check the box, Christian, and it's like, oh, 56% of, of America identifies as Christians. Barna did further research, and they basically began to identify in a couple different areas. They asked, um, how many people say they do not believe in God, identify as atheists, disagree that faith is important in their lives, have not prayed to God in the last week, have never made a commitment to Jesus, disagree that the Bible is accurate, have not donated money to a church in the last year, have not attended a Christian church in the last six months, agree that Jesus committed sins, do not feel a responsibility to share their faith, have not read the Bible, have not volunteered at church, have not attended any small group. They're, they're basically going like, if, if we were to say like, what would be some of the evidences if you were to check the box Christian, what would be some of the practices, and, and not to like jump into legalism and go like, hey, you got to do all these things to be Christian, but it's going like, these would be some of the fruit that would come out of your life, that you would gather with this community, that you would be generous with your stuff, that you would read the Bible, the book that you say you believe, and that gives you guidance and, and really instructs you to live. And what they find is, on those 13 different characteristics, only 8% of people in America identify with those. So if you're wondering, we're actually like 8% Christian. 8%. We're beginning to see the shift from the majority to the minority, which means when you walk into Walmart and there's 100 people in there, there's only 8 people probably who identify as a follower of Jesus. And so there's going to be this, this trend and there's going to be this shift to follow the herd. And to follow the herd means you're, you're following the majority of crowd that doesn't worship or follow Jesus. The number is growing. There's a second shift. The second shift is from honor to shame. You've heard me speak about this often. I've talked about um, that there was a period of time where being a follower of Jesus was seen as positive. Uh, people, like, if you were going to run for mayor of your city, you would be a follower of Jesus because being a follower of Jesus would get you elected. Uh, it was good for business, right? Like, being a follower of Jesus was seen in a positive light. And then we, we saw a shift happen around 2004 where it was neutral, 
And then we've seen a shift again in 2014. There was a rising hostility against the church, and it's from a place of honor to shame, to the place where they say to be a follower of Jesus is actually oppressive. It's oppressive. And really what we need in this sense of going like, how do we engage in a world where we've been seen as positive, that we bring an influential, encouraging presence to a place, and in, a, in a place where the people saw the church as instrumental and key to the health of a city, uh, to where now they realize that like, they, they've moved to a place where the church is the last place people are looking for hope and looking for help. And, and so it's this place of to be a follower of Jesus means to uh, heap shame upon ourselves. And this is how the culture views us. And there's going to be new strategies needed to reach that culture. And then lastly, from tolerance to, to hostility. People have put up with us. People have put up with us. They, they, I don't mean persecution like the shedding of blood like we see in Acts 8 with the, the life of Stephen. Where, but but I'm, I'm, I'm talking about there's a right. People are losing their jobs for faith in Jesus. People are giving up their livelihood and, and resources and relationships. It's costing people more today to follow Jesus than ever before. And so in many ways, we, we experience this oppressive nature. We see in places like Canada where pastors are being arrested for things they say. I'm just wondering, like, what, when, when is it going to happen? When is the time coming where I am censored in what I teach and what I can and can't teach, where I can no longer teach from the truth of this book because to do so would, would be seen as hate speech? There's coming a time where, and it's rising, that there is an uproar and there's a hostility towards the church. And here's my question. And maybe for you today, if you're just showing up and you're like, hey, I'm, I'm just coming here for the first time today. Uh, and like, man, you're just, you're just kind of heaping all this like persecution. Why in the world would I want to follow Jesus? And if I can give you any encouragement just out of the gates of like, hey, why, why, why this passage? How is this helpful to me as somebody who's showing up here for the first time today? And here's what I would say. Millions of people have lost their lives for the sake of Jesus, and if they were to stand here before you today, they would say it's worth it. It's worth it. What my job is in, in hopes of, of really equipping you is to give you healthy expectations of what is coming, of where this shift is going, of giving you resources to be able to anchor you in the midst of this cultural storm in the wilderness. How do we, what do we anchor to? How do we find hope in the midst of this, in the midst of our trouble? What do we cling to? And, and I'm showing, I, I hope that, that avoidance or separating yourself from this, uh, there's no way you have to go through it, and it's only going through it that you find that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. The reason we walk through this is because I believe your growth is dependent on it. And while this may cause many to fear and grow anxious, I want to read a quote by Mark Sayers. He says, we must not see this time as a disaster, but an opportunity for rebirth, renewal, and revival. 
In the scriptures, the, the wilderness, that challenging and chaotic place, is transformed into an arena of spiritual growth where leaders encounter the presence of God and become a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. My question to us this morning is, will we be a participant in the resilient remnant of post-Christian culture? We're entering into a season where, where it's calling. It, there's a purging that's happening, and it's a healthy purge. There's a purging that's happening in the church. If you feel like there's a segregate, and I feel like, man, where do I align? How do I, where do, where's my place? Where do my loyalties lie? And I would tell you that there is a purging that's happening in the church where Jesus is rising up and seeing who we're going to be, that resilient remnant that engage that involve themselves in post-Christian culture. The resilient, meaning they take a licking and keep on ticking, like Timex watches, right? Like we, we're able to keep going. We're able to keep getting up. We're able to keep rising up. We're able to keep fighting. The remnant, that, what, that, that which remains. When a community goes through catastrophe, what remains of that? And I, here's the thing. I'm not scared by the shrinking numbers of Christianity. I think what it's showing is just who is true to Christianity. Who are the true followers of Jesus? Jesus is looking for that remnant. All throughout the Bible, the Bible talks about a remnant. I, I'll give you one example just to kind of show you uh, where we see this in... Um, Isaiah 1.9, let me see where in my notes, it says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, and the word there in the Hebrew is remnant. If he wouldn't have left a remnant, we, we would have become like Sodom and we become like Gomorrah. Every time God is working and moving in the life of people, he leaves a remnant. And it's through that remnant that he brings revival and a reawakening. That's what we're experiencing this is an opportunity like no other for the church to shine. Will you be a part of the resilient remnant? Will that be you? That is what this passage talks about. David is writing this passage as a part of the resilient remnant who is facing hardship. And we have a lot to learn. Here's what I would say out of the gates. First of all, the resilient remnant will expect hardship. The resilient remnant will expect hardship. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 5 here. David says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the floods sweep over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Here's what David experiences in this passage. David experiences anxiety fear, hatred, and he said it's all without cause, meaning whatever he's experiencing, the hatred, the, the, the uh, antagonist attitude, the, the persecution that he's experiencing, all of that without cause. 
He's going to go on to say that he's not sinless, and we're going to get to that, because only one person in the world can say that everything that he experienced in life was without cause, and that's Jesus. But here, David recognizes that, that for whatever's coming against him, whatever persecution, whatever hatred he's experiencing, it's all without cause. He's sinking. There's no footing. There's no place for him to stand. He's crying. He says he can't see God. There's hatred, they're lying, they're slandered. He, he says in, in the next passage that uh, he's become a stranger to his brothers and an alien to his mother's sons. He's become isolated from his family. He's experiencing isolation. He's in the spotlight for all the wrong reasons. There's no one to comfort him. And if this isn't a picture of what it means to be faithful to Christ in our day and time, I don't know what is. I can't tell you, I, I posted something very brief and did not expect nearly the response on social media about abortion, and numerous people are like, man, I would never post anything like that. I, thank you for your boldness. Thank you for your leadership in that. Thank you for your, Why? Because we've been silenced as a community. There's been a sense of where, like, this overwhelming culture has, has risen up to silence us, to make us afraid, to make us fearful, to make us isolated, to get us to a place where like, where is God in the midst of this? To cause us to be seen and painted in a picture and put us in the spotlight for reasons we don't want to be in the spotlight for, and ultimately to, to isolate us from community and let us see like we stand alone. The world is out to do that to you. And you should expect it. And the reason I tell you to expect it is because having healthy expectations will help you prepare for those moments when they arise. Know that they are coming. You're going to have to be resilient in the midst of that. And for those who are resolved to be a part of the resilient remnant, this will be your faith. Here's what I would tell you. Moving forward, following Jesus is going to look more like this than whatever we've experienced in the last 20, 30, 40 years as followers of Jesus. All right, we ready to keep going? Yeah. Like, this is what it looks like, and we need to be prepared for that. It's not hopeless. We have a Savior. We have a King. We have a ruler who is over all, and, and we serve Him, and we follow Him. But we need to expect this. And what this would ultimately lead us to, this would lead us to the end of ourselves. And that would be a healthy place. When we think about all the wilderness, when we think about all the times that God has led his church, he led them through seasons. And this is where Mark Sayers in his book, uh, he just wrote a book called Non-Anxious Present. It's excellent. And he would talk about we're entering into gray zones. We're stepping out of comfort zones where we've lived in American Christianity fairly comfortable for the past however long, like, and, and, and really we're entering into a gray zone where we see this shifting. We're entering into this wilderness zone, but it's in the wilderness where God meets us. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 through 4. And it says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord God has led you these 40 years into the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger. That doesn't sound like a loving God. He let you hunger, but then he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know 
that he might make known to, you, to man that you do not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It's amazing. It's amazing. He led you there to provide for you. He led you there to fulfill your destiny. He led you there to, to give you the provision that you really need and to teach you what it is that you find your, like, I need this to be sufficient. I need this to be satisfied. And he led us to this place to find him and him alone. And it's in that place where people recognize, where they healed, that revival and reawakening began. You might ask, how can I grow? How can I be formed? I'll tell you right now, like, you don't, Ask Shauna Jones who led our, if you want to like grow, lead something, right? Like you step into a role of leadership, you have to be a voice in this world that preaches this truth and you better like be prepared. Hardship is coming. Hardship is coming. Many of us are going to avoid it and in attempt to, uh, look at the next exit out of hardship, we're going to seek to be cozy with culture. And I feel like I see this more and more and more um, in our time. I, I see this on social media. I see followers of Jesus seeking to be cozy with culture, trying to figure out how to thread that cultural needle so that I don't have to be true to God's word. And, and ultimately, I just want to kind of be seen in this light where it's like, how can I cozy up with my coworkers and the people I work, and I, I don't want to be seen as a stranger or an alien to them, and so I don't want to be so vocal about this, so I'm just going to hide in the shadows, or I want to show how I understand where they're coming from, and I want to side with them, and I want to position myself with them and posture myself against the church, and here's the thing. You're not going to be able to thread the cultural needle. Either you stand with Jesus or you stand with the world. And that's the only two options. It's going to be very challenging. And we should expect hardship. And it's in the hardship that we grow, that we find that all of our sufficiency comes from God and God alone. If you constantly retreat to your comfort zone, you will not be influential for the kingdom of God. Nor will you experience the growth that God intends for you. You cannot lead and stay in the comfort zone. And what the world needs, it needs people to lead. It needs people that are willing to embrace hardship and be vocal for the things of Christ. To do so with gentleness. This doesn't mean just be a jerk, okay? Like there's people that experience hardship just because they're, they're a jerk, right? And there's a way to do it, and I'm going to talk about how to endure responsibly here soon, um, but there's a way in which we engage the world that in doing so and pursuing righteousness is going to set us up for hardship. Expect it. Expect it. Um, he says in verse 9 why he's experiencing it. It says, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you who have They've fallen on me. Basically, those who hate you, um, 
they actually, now they hate me. And they hate me because they hate you. And that's what I want you to really experience. People don't actually hate you. They hate Jesus. And, and when you become zealous, when you become passionate about the things of Christ, ultimately, the hatred that people have for Jesus in his ways is ultimately going to come upon you. Jesus warned us of this. In John chapter 15, verses 18 through 25, here's what Jesus said to the disciples. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. That's good. Hey, people hate you? Yeah, they hate me. They hated me before they hated you. Good comfort, right? Like, all right, we're in good company. If we're with Jesus, we're going to be hated. If you were of the world, the world would love you. But because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If you kept my word, they'll also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And that's the sad part. That's what grieves our hearts. We don't, the world is not our enemy. I, I, I want to make sure I, I voice that. Like, people across our city, culture is not our enemy. We, we love, Jesus looked upon a city and he wept. He had compassion. He was broken. They were sheep without a shepherd. He was, he was heartbroken over that. That should break our heart. They're not our enemy, but they are hostile against us, against us. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be filled. Here's that word again. They hated me without cause. They hated me. Jesus has experienced this. Jesus experienced what it felt like to be hated without cause. And so we see that, expect hardship. Second thing is this, the resilient remnant will endure responsibly. The resilient remnant will endure responsibly, verses 6 through 12. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. That dishonor has covered my face. If I became a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. Here's how David endured responsibly. The first thing is this. He endured responsibly with a posture towards community. He never saw himself as like just this isolated individual. Now, here's what everything that we just talked, the, the lie, the slander, the hatred, all the things that he's experiencing, like, I don't know about you, but I, this is me. Like if I'm experiencing that, I'm probably not thinking about you in that moment. Oh, come on, pastor. Like, uh, be honest with yourself. Like, you're experiencing a sense of isolation, persecution, and hatred in your workplace. Is the way in which you endure that cause you to go, 
I want to endure this faithfully because I don't want to bring dishonor upon my Church of the Valley family. That's interesting. That's what he says in this passage. He says, let not those who hope in you, those who are faithful, be put to shame through me. Let the way that I endure this, let the way that I face this, let the way that I experience this this shaming, let it not bring dishonor to your people. I love that. Like he is continuing to think about, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. See, he sees his actions reflecting on the community at large. And he sees that he is responsible for how they respond. He sees himself as part of a family. He's responsible with the family of God. The way in which you engage and endure, the way in which you respond on social media, the way in which you respond in your workplace, the way that you respond honors or dishonors this community. That's important to note. The second thing is this. Not only did he endure responsibly with posture towards his community, he endured responsibly with his posture towards sin. Now, what do I mean by that? We live in a world, okay, um, and not to belittle the Me Too movement, but all of us are, are beginning to identify more and more with whatever type of, like, we just want to say Me Too, me too. I've experienced that too. I, I'm, I've experienced th- that abuse, that, that harm, that ridicule. Like we, we live in this victimhood mentality and always fail to live up to our own sin. And while he says that whatever he's experiencing and whatever is coming against him is without cause, he says in verse 5, Oh God, you know my folly. You know where I've gone wrong. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. And I think it's important to note, to endure responsibly means to own up for our sin. We live in a world that loves to point the finger and loves to point out where everyone else has failed. And I would just say, like, my my go-to is, like, you're welcome to do that if you're willing to point out your sins first. Okay? So social media, social media is fair game. You're totally free to point out the sin and failings of others if you lead with yours. And that would solve the social media problem. Because we won't. We will not be that vulnerable. Because we love to be protected. Because ultimately we think we've done no wrong. And David is acknowledging his sin. To endure responsibly means to think in light of the greater community, to think towards our posture towards sin. And then lastly, he endures responsibly with his posture towards faithfulness. I cannot tell you how often I hear when people are experiencing hardship, they begin to drift away from the Lord. When, when people begin experiencing, they're like, oh, man, you, you wouldn't believe like, what, what I'm experiencing and what, what's happening. And, and I'm like, man, how? And, and yeah, my, my life's just a mess and I'm experiencing 
it's just, it's pain, it's troublesome, it's challenging. And I'm like, man, where are, you, where are you finding comfort? Like, how's the Lord strengthening you in that? How's the Lord, like, are you still walking and faithful to it? And like, no, I haven't. Do you really expect me to do that in the midst of this? Yeah. Verse 9, he was zealous for the house of the Lord. And what does it say? In the midst of this, he continued with fasting. He continued in his spiritual disciplines. He continued to walk faithfully to the Lord. In the midst of this, he remained zealous about the things of the Lord. He endured responsibly. Let me ask you a question. How many of us have endured consequences for commitment to Jesus? Because of our zealousness for the things of the Lord we've experienced or endured consequences. And I think this is what it, t- it tells us right here, how to endure responsibly. Endure with, responsibly with a posture towards our greater community. Endure responsibly with our posture towards sin. And endure responsibly with a posture towards remaining faithful. Remaining. We see Daniel... Like, we go back, we taught Daniel several years ago, and it was easy for Daniel, who'd been hauled off to Babylon, to be caught up in the cultural stream. But he became that resilient remnant. He remained firm. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4, 7, talking about Babylon, we've, we've covered this passage before, but I think this is a great posture towards us, like, This was written to the Israelites, and they were taken from their homeland. They were taken from their people. They were were put into a culture that was totally unlike theirs. And here's what the Lord spoke to them in the midst of that. May these words encourage you. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. It's interesting. Like he tells them in a way to like begin, figure out how to remain fruitful in the midst of those times. And I just wonder like what does it look like for us in the midst of this, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of shame and hatred and persecution and lie and slander, what does it look like for us to remain fruitful in that season? Can I give you three responses real quickly, like as a side note? I think there's three typical responses to our culture that is, that is different than what, what is listed here in Jeremiah 29. Like what, this is what the Lord, there, there's the separatist where it's like, we're just going to create our own community. We're going to be completely isolated from the community. We're, we're going to just kind of live in our own uh, world and totally stay away from any sense, like we, we're just going to keep our head down. We're not going to speak up about issues. And that's, that's some of our mentality. Like, I don't want to experience this. So I'm just going to be a part of an isolated community. The second is the conformist that we just get sucked in and we assimilate to the culture, right? 
Like that's just another easy way to go about it. Like rather than just keeping my head down and staying quiet, I'm just going to go along to get along. And so I'm just going to conform to the culture and and just take on their way. I don't want to be uncomfortable, so I'm going to adopt their ways. And I would tell you the third way is the way of Jesus, and it's the reformist. The reformist is looking like how do I live within how do I be in but not of? And that's what, the, what Jesus asked us to, like that we would live in the midst of culture. We would be engaged in the world. We would live as missionaries. We would be missionally inclined, but we wouldn't be of the world. We need a community to live like that, folks. Like we need a people to link arms with if we're going to do that effectively. Here's what Gerald Sitzer in his book, Resilient Faith, he said, the third way, the way of Jesus, was like a resistant movement both subversive and peaceful. Like, subversive meaning like they would come in and, and like they didn't just go along to get along. They were facing challenges. They were, they were bringing the truth of God's word. They were making that known. Uh, many of the early, like much of the early church like was a threat to the Roman community. Are, are, we, a th- do we, are we seen as a threat? Like, I mean, no, I think they're just like running us over. Like there's a sense of like, and and this is where I would turn us to. And like, I I would use the word like our way should be a way of subversive service. That we we would remain true, that we would be engaging, that we would dialogue with, with intellect and wisdom and know God's word, but we would do so with a posture of humility and love and with peace and with gentleness and that we would engage our community. We live in a world that, that is just saying like, love your neighbor. And that means don't tell them anything that's going to make them feel uncomfortable. And that's not loving your neighbor if you never share with them the good news of Jesus. To love your neighbor means to engage. Jesus never left people where they were. Never. Never. And so, so many of us, we sit idly by and we, we're shoulder to shoulder with people who we know don't follow the ways of Jesus. And we, out of fear of, 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 or sense of not wanting to be uncomfortable, we reserve ourselves to remain quiet and silent. And God is, is raising up a resilient remnant that would endure responsibly, that would go and engage in a way I didn't finish the quote. Here it is. Both subversive and peaceful, bearing witness to God's coming kingdom, but rather than following a strategy of violent revolution, we're not meant to be violent. As say the zealots did, Christians immerse themselves in a culture as agents of the kingdom. Christians aspired to follow another way, Jesus's way. They prayed for the emperor, but refused to worship him. I love that. It's just a picture of what it looks like to engage to engage, that we wouldn't demonize the other. Because when we begin to demonize the other, we'll, neg- we'll neglect to care for the people that Jesus came to serve. We need to see them as people that God seeks to redeem and to love. Last thing, or third thing, the resilient remnant will engage prayerfully, okay? Engage prayerfully. Like 13 through 21, I, w- I won't read all the verses, but you can go back and read and, and I, I don't want this to hit you uh, out of the gates. Like when you read 13 to 21, it's like, oh, he's praying. That seems commonplace. Prayer is not commonplace. Like prayer is not something that we um, 
tend to just like, oh, we just drifted towards. Like, he prays. Like, it is the only thing that he has. It is the only place where he can go. To remain firm as the resilient remnant, he prays. He engages prayerfully. He, he, the song that we sang, like, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. It's a prayer before God of going like, the brokenness, the chaos, what we're experiencing in our world today cannot be fixed because of great legislature or smart leaders. God has to fix it. God has to redeem it. And until we posture ourselves and humbly come before God, I love that Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, you can read through those. Um, it says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those, like, you, you read these. these. These are people who are needy. And it says that through those people, through those people who are needy before God, they become the salt of the earth. They become part of the resilient remnant that preserves the earth. They become the light, Matthew 5, 16. They're a part of the resilient remnant. Those who become needy before God and see themselves with open hands and say, I, I need you. Last thing, the resilient remnant will experience the comfort of Christ. The comfort of Christ. Here's what I would say. Comfort, I, I, I hope you hear this, okay? Because many of you, I, and, and myself included, I say many of you, and I'm like, I'm with you. I always say that, like, I should be sitting out there with you because I'm speaking to myself. We, we avoid things that make us uncomfortable, but here's what I would say. Separating ourselves from, from culture and, and conforming, to, or, or conforming to culture will not make us more comfortable, in life. Coming under the comfort of Christ is what truly brings comfort that we need. Comfort comes from Christ. We experience the, the anxiety of our world. We, we see like we've experienced anxiety. We've walked through COVID. We're walking through like economic, you know, just uh, it's crazy right now. We're like how in the world am I going to like fill up my car with gas next week? It's, we're, just, we're becoming more and more fearful as people. And so we're going, hey, wh- what I need to not tack on right now is more anxiety. And if living for Jesus brings more anxiety, then I'm just going to avoid it and I'm just going to conform. And that's, that's easy to do in, those, in this time. And, and honestly, I think it's the tendency for many of us why do I want to tack on more anxiety? But here's what I would say. And particularly my role as a pastor and as a shepherd and someone who is keeping watch over the souls of people here at Church of the Valley. I think many pastors have caved to this mentality and going like, I don't want them to feel any more anxiety. So I don't want to, to, to bring any more, anything that would cause them to experience that. And so I, that we've given in as pastors in many ways to this cultural idea of comfort. How do I make my people comfortable? How do, how do I lead them and, and just, you know, not put anything that would cause them to be burdened or experience? How do we live in an environment where, where 
we don't really experience like growth in character. We just experience comfort. And my thing is, is to not push you into pain points is keeping you from your true growth. Not illustrating and not telling you that this is the role, like this is where a follower of Jesus, this is where we're headed. Not wanting to bring that anxiety to you this morning is not equipping you and is not preparing you for the growth that God wants to bring into your life. Mark Sayers says this, we can fall into the temptation not to lead people toward growth, but manage their good feelings. The goalposts can subtly shift from growing a church or organization toward health and growth to ensuring that the congregation is happy and comfortable. Here's the deal. If you've been here for any length of time, or maybe you're showing up this morning, and you're like, hey, does what Justin preaches, is it happy and comfortable? Not always. But I want you to see that happy and comfortable doesn't come from avoiding or putting up barriers and not facing. Happy and comfortable comes from walking with Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Jesus left his comfort zone. Jesus was willing to go into the wilderness. Jesus was willing to experience shame, ridicule, mocking. Why? For you. For you. Why did he do it? He did it to glorify his Father in heaven. He did it to be obedient to his Father in heaven. He did it so that he could sympathize with you. He did it to reveal his love for you. And it's in the midst of our pain, even right now, and what we're experiencing, we are walking through. If anyone, Jesus is the only person that can 100% say, I, I have been shamed, I've been ridiculed, I've been persecuted without cause. He's the only one. And he did it so he can sympathize with you. So the application of this text is, when we read this and we go like, who's experienced? Jesus has experienced this. He is standing with you. He is standing for you. He is standing alongside you in the midst of this. Comfort comes from him. When we read this passage over in verse 21, it says, they gave me poison for food and for thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. Where what, what does that jog our mind? Like if we think about the crucifixion of Jesus, where they, they, they held a sponge up to, to Jesus in John 19, 30. It says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed up his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus has, has experienced this. And he's leading you into the wilderness so that he can comfort and walk alongside you. In the book of Hosea, it's a fascinating book that talks about the prophet Hosea who ultimately uh, his unfaithful wife betrays him. But in a much larger picture, it's portraying unfaithful Israel to God. But how God is going to lead Israel into the wilderness to woo his church back into relationship. Listen to this passage in verse Hosea 2, 14 through 15. It says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her, and there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of acre. And the word acre means trouble. I will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. Church, Everything that you're experiencing, everything that you're walking through, the valley of trouble, the valley of pain, he's making it into a door of hope. And there 
She shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out at the land of Egypt. This experience, while it's painful, while it's hard, while it's scary and it's full of anxiety, Christ experienced that for you to sympathize with you. And that as you are led into it, he's doing that to allure you back into relationship with him. What I see as someone who has a 30,000 foot view over the churches, we're in the valley of trouble. And many of us are determining where our loyalties lie right now. Will I keep following Jesus? Will I keep running hard? Will I keep being zealous for the house of the Lord? Will I be a part of the resilient remnant? Or will I give in to the cultural stream? And he's bringing you through this right now to allure you, to woo you back into relationship and to show you the way to the door of hope. Endure, church. Keep fighting, church. Hang in there. And rest upon the comfort of Christ who experienced all of this without cause. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. And we don't make light of what anyone has experienced in this room or what anyone is experiencing in this room. Lord, you know what we all walk through. You know the pain. You know the relational strife we've experienced, the reproach that we have brought upon ourselves and the reproach that we've brought because people's hatred towards you. I pray that you would give us a resilient faith, a faith that endures, a faith that is strengthened. But I pray that also, Lord, that you would make us meek, that you would make us strong, strength under power, strength, power that's, that's reserved, that's kept, that's managed, that's bridled. Lord, that you would give us that type of strength, but you would give us a heart of compassion. Help us to truly model what it looks like, like Jesus, to be full of truth and full of grace and to not compromise one for the other. Help us to, to be a people that love you and love the people you came and you gave your life for. Help us to love our city. Help us to seek the welfare of our city. Help us to seek the welfare of the people of our city. Lord, give us compassion. But most of all, Lord, I pray that you would bring us back to you. That you would remind us of your great love for us. And that this pain point we're experiencing is a way to experience your great love and provision for our life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.